Okay, we are uh, in Romans chapter 10, working our way diligently through the book of Romans, and, uh, and we are uh, in the middle of chapter 10. Uh, and last week we looked at, uh, uh, primarily we looked at verses, verses 11 through 13. And uh, today I want to pick up with verse 14 and, and uh, hopefully get down through about verse 17. Uh, but just to get the context again, let's, let's uh, start reading in verse 5. Uh, Paul has in the verses just before that been talking about his love for Israel, his desire for uh, Israel's salvation. Uh, he talks about how they had not known about God's righteousness and had sought to establish a righteousness of their own. And then he picks up in verse 5 and he says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call in Him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Okay? Well, looking back at those previous verses, uh, particularly verses 11 through 13 and the verses even just before that, what are some of the things you remember that we discussed last week? Okay. Okay. And that that is tied to the heart and the mind. It's, it's all kind of combined together, even though it sounds like it's very distinct things that you have to do. Okay. That are all tied to those those things. Okay. Like the and the okay. Good. Okay. So Paul is using. Uh, he's kind of using a a formula, if you will, or a motif. Uh, that he's using, that he's picked up from 
from Deuteronomy, this idea of the heart and the mouth, and he's using kind of this dual motive thing uh, to explain to us uh, what is this word of faith that he's preaching. And uh, in association association with the heart, he talks about believing, he talks about believing in the resurrection, etc. And in association with the mouth, he talks about confessing and what we see in uh, confessing Jesus as Lord and what we see is as as we go through the passage he's using these ideas kind of interchangeably so it's not like he's trying to make a great big distinction between believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth that these are really kind of blended into one idea but but uh, but he's using this this same formula that Moses used in Deuteronomy, the idea that the word, uh, the word that he's preaching, the, the uh, gospel of salvation, he says, is near to us. It's accessible to us. It's, it's not something we have to ascend into heaven to get. It's not something we have to descend into the abyss to get, but it's very near us. It's in our mouth and it's in our heart. And so it's not a big, he's not trying to draw a big distinction between mouth and heart and believing and confessing. Uh, he's not trying to make a big issue out of that, but rather to see what he's trying to show is how this is near to us, how it is simple, how the gospel is accessible to us is the idea that he's trying to communicate. What else? Confessing. I know this, I believe this, this is what came from Abraham Well, that's a good point. Actually, that issue will come up a little bit in the verses that we're looking at today. So, uh, so I think the idea that Hal's communicating is the, is the stress here on it's a believing with the heart uh, as opposed to a believing, just an intellectual believing. Uh, and... Uh, and and we actually may pick up some of that distinction today, so that's that's a good thought, you know. What else? Uh, I was talking to Dennis about this the other day. I, I don't remember the words that worked out or who said it, but there was a controversy about what people were doing. Controversy about what? Yo, eating, eating uh huh, uh huh. What comes out of your mouth, uh huh, uh huh. Comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we learn about that in other places. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah. So, so in, in one sense, I think that's kind of the idea that's being conveyed here is that the person who has a true saving faith in their heart in the gospel is the person who 
confesses Christ as Lord, the person who calls upon the name of the Lord. So the calling on the name of the Lord that he talks about there in verse 13 is, is a kind of an automatic response that comes out of a heart of faith in the gospel. The person who truly believes the gospel calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation and is saved. So, yeah, that's a good thought. The mouth is speaking out of what fills the heart. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah. Yes, David. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh Yes. Uh The power of God, yes. Yeah. that we're going to look at today and think about today. So those are good thoughts. Great. Thank you. Okay. We also talked last week, uh, you'll recall, we talked about the fact that he makes there in, in verse 12, he talks about the fact that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. His point is that the gospel is equally accessible to both. Okay. The idea is it's, uh, is it's, It's not far off. You don't have to go to heaven to bring Christ down. You don't have to go down to the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. The gospel is near you. It's close to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And this is true, he says, not only for the Jew, but also for the Greek or the Gentile. Okay? So it's, so the gospel is easily accessible. It's easy, in one sense, it's easy to believe. It's, it's right there. It's close at hand. Not only for the Jew, but also for the Greek. How does Paul know that? What does he base that upon? I mean, when we read through the Old Testament, there's not a whole lot. There is some, but there's not a whole lot said about, uh, about the Gentiles. It's primarily, a, the Old Testament focuses primarily on the Jews, and it focuses on God's love for the Jews and God's purpose for the Jews and that sort of thing. How does Paul know that this doesn't just apply to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles? On the way through, he has blessed Israel, so Israel can bless the nations and share with the nations and convey to them the truth that they know. Okay, now that's true. Uh, that's true. But in this particular passage, Paul's using another argument. Now that argument is true, of course. But in this particular, in verse 12, he uses another argument. And what is that argument? Something we've talked about at length. Okay, 
that Jesus is the, and I use, I've used the term, the objective universal Lord. Okay? And by objective, by being the objective Lord, we mean that He is Lord regardless of my response to Him. Okay? So there's an objective Lordship and a subjective Lordship. And as an individual, I can make a choice or decision as to whether or not I'm going to obey Christ, whether I'm going to follow Christ. That's subjective lordship, okay? Clearly taught in scriptures, clearly important. But there's also the objective lordship of Christ. That is that He is Lord over all creation. And He's Lord over all people. And regardless of their response to Him, He is their Lord, okay? So they may be for, uh, for temporal purposes. And, and at this particular time, they may be disobeying Him. They may not be submitting to His lordship. But He is still Lord and ultimately will exercise that lordship over them. That's the objective lordship of Christ, independent of my response to Him. So He is our object. He is the objective Lord, but He is also the universal Lord. That's what Paul says here in verse 12. He is the Lord of all. His lordship is not only objective, independent of my response, but it is universal. It applies. He is your Lord. He's my Lord. He's the Lord of the pagan out on the street. He is everyone's Lord. And it's that idea that Christ is the Lord of all upon which Paul builds his argument that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. The reason there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile is because Christ is Lord of the Jew and the Gentile both. And so because he is Lord of both Jew and Gentile, whoever calls upon him as Lord will be saved. That's Paul's argument. Okay. So, and then we talked a little bit about the fact that, that this is kind of revolutionary thinking to the Jew. Because to the Jew, he thinks there is a distinction. Okay. Paul says there is no distinction, but the Jew has always assumed there is a distinction. But the particular area in which Paul says there is no distinction is very limited. In other words, there are differences between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews, you know, followed the law. The Gentile didn't follow the law. The Jews are descendants of Abraham. The Gentile is not a descendant. There are a lot of ways in which there are distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. So when Paul says there is no distinction, he's referring to one specific thing about which there is no distinction. And that is the accessibility and the availability of salvation through Christ. That is the one area in which there is no distinction. And that uh, elimination of distinction, that, no dis- that, that argument that there is no distinction as far as the availability of salvation between Jew and Gentile is predicated on the truth of the objective universal lordship of Christ. So, if you can follow the argument, Paul is going, okay, Christ is Lord of all. And because Christ is Lord of all, then over here, when we're thinking about these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, I understand that Christ is Lord of the Jews and I understand He is Lord of the Gentiles. And so that I know 
that the verse that says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord applies to both Jew and Gentile. But the Jew thought, no, this is exclusive. This is just for us because we are the elect. We are the chosen of God. And the Gentile over here, he is not the chosen of God. And so, Paul says, no, even these people over here, even these, because Christ is their Lord, their objective Lord, because He is their Lord, if they call upon Him, they too can be saved. And so what this idea, this principle of the objective universal Lordship of Christ, which we confess and acknowledge when we get saved, this objective universal Lordship of Christ, what this tells us is that God has made no distinction between persons. God has not said to some, these people over here can be saved and these people over here cannot be saved. But He has made salvation available to all who call upon the name of the Lord. Okay? So those are some of the things we talked about last week. Now we're going to pick up the verses that, that David was just talking about beginning in verse 16 where he says, uh, or verse 14, excuse me, how will they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so now we come to these verses, which of course are very well known to us. And these are verses which uh, historically the church has understood uh, in a certain way to, uh, to be in... Uh, to uh, address the issue of the imperative of the church, the Great Commission, the responsibility the church has to make sure that everybody has heard this good news. Okay, And so we read these verses, we use these verses, and so oftentimes when we're talking about missions or we're talking about evangelism, we're talking about sharing our faith, these verses come up. Because Paul has what Paul is arguing here is he's, or, or presenting to us, I should say, what he's presenting to us is the sequence of events which must happen before someone can call upon the name of the Lord. He has just told us that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What has to happen before a person can call upon the name of the Lord? That's the issue that Paul's addressing here. Now, as I said, we typically, when we look at this passage, we think of it in reference to the subject of evangelism and missions. Okay, But that really is kind of the incidental message in this passage. This was not, it wasn't Paul's primary objective in, in saying these things or writing these things to the church in Rome. His primary objective was not to set out uh, for us the uh, evangelistic imperative of the church. That is certainly implied there. And it's not a distortion of the passage to read the passage and recognize that imperative in these verses. Okay. But that's not Paul's main point. What Paul is still addressing here is the 
is the issue he's been addressing since early in chapter 9 is the question, what about the Jews? That's the question he's addressing, remember? And as we got to the beginning of chapter 10, he starts talking about how he actually repeats what he said early in 9, but there at the beginning of 10, he says, I have this love for Israel. I want to see them saved, but they they stumbled over the stumbling block. They've not been saved. And so he's wrestling with this question. Why has Israel as a group, as a, as a whole, certainly many individual Jews have been saved, but as a whole, Israel has not come to Christ, has not believed the gospel, has not called upon the name of the Lord. Why not? What's gone wrong? Okay, that's the issue that Paul is addressing. What has gone wrong? And basically, it goes back to the question that, that he asked at the beginning of chapter 9, Has God been faithful or not? Has God failed in His promises to Israel? That's the question he's addressing. So, really, the primary reason that Paul brings up this sequence of events that lead to someone calling upon the name of the Lord is because he's addressing the question, what's gone wrong? He's going to look at this sequence of events, and we won't get to it all today, so... Since we have a couple weeks off, it'll be next week before we fully answer this question. uh, or I mean, three weeks before we fully answer this question. But the question is, if 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 this is the sequence of events, if these are the prerequisites that must happen in order for somebody to call upon the name of the Lord, where has the breakdown come? Why has Israel not done this? Why has Israel not called on the name of the Lord? That's the primary question that Paul is dealing with. But in explaining to us this this sequence of events that is prerequisite to calling upon the name of the Lord, and explaining to that, we come to understand more about the church's imperative of evangelism and world missions. Okay, so it is an important part. It is an important understanding of the passage, and I don't want to imply that it's not a critical understanding of the passage, but I don't believe it is the primary purpose for which the passage was written. Okay, so that being said, he has just said in verse 13 that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so now the question comes up, what has to happen before someone can call upon the name of the Lord? Because we know that Israel has not called. So why haven't they called? So let's go back and let's kind of trace the sequence of things that must happen before someone calls to try and figure out where has the breakdown occurred. So, what has to happen before someone can call upon the name of the Lord? Pardon? Uh, Before that. What's the sequence here? What's he say? It's believe. Okay. So, in order to call... Before calling, comes uh, believing, okay? Now, this immediately presents us with a problem. Because what we were arguing in, in verses 11 through 13 and the verses before that is that Paul is not drawing a big distinction between believing and calling on the name of the Lord, Okay? We showed that the idea of salvation and righteousness and the idea of believing and calling uh, and the idea of, 
uh, believing with the heart and call and, and confessing that these really were all kind of really not to be sharply demarked, uh, drawn a line between. OK, that 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 really it's it's kind of one thing, this whole idea of believing and calling upon the Lord. OK, so. So if that is true in verses 10, 11, etc., through verse 13, if that's true there, now we get to verse 14, and it sounds like believing is a predicate for calling, right? That believing is necessary for calling. Believing has to come first. So now it seems like they're not interchangeable. They're not the same thing, right? Okay. So the question is, what is Paul doing here? Well, there's a couple ways that uh, there's a couple ways that this is explained, and, and one is that that Paul is still using them interchangeably. That at this point in his argument, he's saying, well, uh, yes, uh, you you call upon the Lord and you get saved, but that calling is immediately directly associated with faith and the person who believes calls that's just an immediate response of the heart of faith is that it calls upon the lord for salvation okay so salvation faith believing that that faith which results in salvation is a faith which is immediately and directly associated with calling upon the name of the lord so they still are real they're really although paul is putting one before the other here in verse 14 there's not a significant distinction. Uh, another flesh, uh, another way of looking at it is one that John Stott uh, communicates, and uh, and uh, that's the idea that the believing in verse 14 he views as being a little different than the believing in verse 13. That the believing of verse 14 really has more to do with kind of the intellectual like uh, kind of like what David was talking about about we we hear this message over and over again and eventually then we begin to believe it by faith okay so it's it's more the idea of the facts of the case the facts about Christ the facts about his death the facts about his resurrection before we can have saving faith in those facts we have to believe that those are historical realities we have to believe Christ really did that okay so it's kind of it's kind of like the distinction that James makes there in James chapter two when he talks about well you say you have faith well that's great the devils also have faith and they shudder okay so they have a the the devils have a intellectual faith in God, uh, intellectual knowledge of God they believe that God exists okay but it's not a saving faith okay and so perhaps what Paul is doing here is in verse fourteen is he's using that distinction uh, that we kind of pick up in James the idea of there has to be there has to be before one can call upon the name of the Lord a person has to come to a point where they believe the facts about Christ that they believe that he lived that they believe that he died that they believe that his death was an atoning sacrifice that they believe that he rose from the dead that they believe that he is the Lord of all the facts about Christ they have to believe that before they can make that step of saving faith where they actually entrust their lives and their salvation to Him and call upon Him. Okay. So, 
I'm not going to argue dogmatically which one of those two explanations uh, it is. I tend to lead more towards Stock's view uh, that when, when he's uh, talking here in uh, verse 14, he's speaking of the, the, the faith, the belief in the message about Christ, the message, the, the belief in the facts about Christ, and that that becomes then the predicate for the saving faith that's accompanied with a calling upon the name of the Lord. But whatever the case, we know that one cannot call, one will not call upon God until that person believes. Until that person believes these facts about Christ and about salvation and about His life, death, burial, and resurrection and His Lordship. Right? So, it would be insane to think about anybody calling upon God who didn't believe that Christ was Savior. Okay? I mean, we, people don't do that. People don't go, well, he's not the Savior, but I'm going to call on him anyway. People don't do that, right? You've got to believe first before you can call. Well, so that's true, but then what has to happen before somebody can believe? They have to hear, okay? And this is, uh, like I said, the things that uh, David was talking about. It's necessary before someone can go, yeah, I believe Christ lived, died, was buried and rose again from the dead for my sins. Before somebody can believe that, they have to know it. And in order to know it, they have to have heard it somewhere. This is not instinctive knowledge. These are not the kind of things we know about God that we read about in Romans chapter 1. Okay. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the things that are universally known about God. Everybody knows them because they're revealed like the psalmist says in the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God, etc., etc. And there are certain things about God that we just all innately know because it's just we see it. Okay. But this this thing that we must believe before we can call is not instinctively known to us. It must be given to us by revelation. We must hear it. Okay? Now when Paul says Paul talks about hearing it and the necessity of hearing it and somebody might say uh, somebody might say, well, can't somebody just read the Bible? Or can't somebody read a gospel tract and get saved? Why do they have to actually hear it? Okay, Because Paul's putting a lot of emphasis here on the idea, uh, on kind of the audio, uh, audio and the uh, vocal aspect of the communication of this gospel. Okay, It's all focused on this vocal, audible aspect. Why does he do that? Can somebody not get saved by reading a good Christian book? Okay. Okay. Great. Exactly. Okay. So Paul's dealing it, and Paul's writing in the ancient world, and in the ancient world, we didn't have PowerPoint, right? <laughs> we didn't have the internet. We didn't have books. 
We didn't have gospel tracts. Okay, they did have, of course, they did have the scriptures written down, etc. But, but very few people could read. And even of the, of the few who could read, very few of those actually had access to be able to read, uh, to read the scriptures. And so the majority of what was true about God that was not revealed in creation had to be communicated verbally. Okay. So it would be wrong to read this passage and think that that's the only way the gospel can be communicated. That's the only way a person could get saved is if they actually hear audibly the gospel message being communicated. Okay? Because we do have other means. We do have other tools available to us today. And I have no doubt that if Paul were around today, he would use all of those tools. Okay? I guess I couldn't argue that dogmatically because the Bible doesn't say... But I do think the Bible does make it clear that this message is so important that we get it out any way we can get it out. Okay, So we use the media that are available to us. We use books. We use movies. We use drama. We use music. We use, uh, we use uh, preaching. We use uh, uh, personal evangelism. We use every possible means we can to communicate this fantastic good news about Christ. Okay, uh, But... Paul's point is, it's got to happen. Somebody is got, not going to know that they should call upon the name of the Lord. And somebody's not going to know that if they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved unless they hear it from somebody. They're not going to know it instinctively. They must hear it. There must be some way that this message is communicated to them. Okay? Well, but, so, we've got hearing, but what is necessary for hearing to take place? Pardon? Say that again. Okay. Okay, that's a good point. That's a great point that there is related to this issue of hearing is the issue of understanding. Okay? In other words, it's not just that this information just goes through one internet, but they've got to understand it. But I'm not going to talk about that now, today, because this is one of the issues that Paul deals with. The question of understanding is one of the questions Paul deals with in the verses that just follow this. So we're going to get to this when we're back together again in three weeks. We're going to deal with this issue of understanding. But that's a very important point. And Paul is going to ask the question, did they understand? Paul's going to ask that specific question. Okay? So, moving on then from hearing... What's got to happen before one hears? You've got to have a preacher. Well, that's no problem. We've got a preacher, right? The problem is when we read this verse that there needs to be a preacher is that what we tend to do is we tend to read into this verse 21st century idea of what a preacher is. What is a preacher in the 21st century to most people? 
Okay? The guy that stands up in front of the church on Sunday morning behind the pulpit and tells us what we ought to think or do or believe. Right? Okay? That's the preacher. Okay? We hire him to do that job. Okay? That's our contemporary idea of the preacher. So that... And, and, and that, that's really a fairly recent phenomena in the history of the church, the idea of the preacher being the guy who stands up front and, and does whatever he does behind the pulpit up there on a Sunday morning. Okay? Uh, that's, that's a fairly recent phenomenon in the history of the church within the last couple hundred years or so. And it grows out of a mentality that the church has cultivated and developed that really this, the main instrument for seeing people saved is the church when it is gathered together. So when the church gathers together, what we do in order to see people saved is we go out and we don't share the gospel with them. We just invite them to church. And our hope and our intent is we invite them to church and they come to church and they sit in the pew and then the preacher will preach the gospel to them. Okay. Now, I've been blessed in uh, most of my adult life to fellowship in churches where that is not the understanding of the role of the guy who stands up in front on a Sunday morning. Okay? Uh, and in the, in, in the New Testament, what we see that the role of the, the pastors, of whom the guy who stands up front is presumably one, uh, or maybe the only one, but that the role of the pastor is to teach and equip the church to do the work of service. Okay. So, typically in the New Testament, the person who's speaking in the meeting of the church is not speaking evangelistically. He's speaking teaching in order to equip the believers. His primary message... His incidental message may be the gospel, but his primary message is one of teaching believers. That's his primary task. Okay. His primary task is not evangelistic. But when I was growing up, many of the churches that I had experience with, and I don't know about you, but that's just what we expect on a Sunday morning. We expected to go to church and hear the preacher stand up front and preach the gospel to the lost that are sitting in the pews. Now, there were a couple reasons for that. One was because of this mentality that we have that that's how we win people to Christ. We just get them to church and let the preacher do the work. Right? And that's one reason. Another reason in my particular experience is I grew up in a, commun- in, in a couple communions of, of Christians who believed you could lose your salvation. So what that meant is that many of the people sitting in the pews who were Christians at one point may not be Christians now and so they need to hear the gospel. So Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday when I went to church as a young person I heard a guy up front standing telling me how to get saved. Well, the problem with that is of course nobody's telling me how to grow in the faith. And maybe if I had somebody up front telling me how to grow in the faith I would have less problem with thinking that I'd lost my salvation. Okay? But... So, at any rate, these are a couple dynamics that are at work. So, when we think of the preacher, we think of the guy who's standing up front. That's absolutely not at all what Paul has in mind. That's not at all what Paul has in mind when he says, before hearing, there must be a preacher. The word there comes from the Greek word caruso, 
which means to herald or a herald, somebody who proclaims. It's the idea you remember when you were in school and you were studying about early American history or whatever, and you would study about the town crier, right? The guy who would walk around the streets of the town and he'd tell you what time it was and he'd tell you what the latest news was on CNN because CNN didn't exist, okay? So he'd say, uh, you know, uh, Aunt, Mary's, uh, uh, Aunt Mary's uncle just got, you know, run over by an ox and that's the latest news from your local town crier. It's 10 o'clock in the morning, okay? So it's the idea of the guy who walks around and spreads the news, declares the news. He is the herald. Well, to illustrate this idea, Paul uses a quote from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And in Isaiah 52... What's happening there is Isaiah is prophesying. He's been telling Israel about all this bad stuff that's going to happen and they're going to be carried off into captivity and all that sort of stuff. And they're going to go down into Egypt and the Assyrians are going to come down and take them. And it's just a really ugly scene. And Jerusalem is going to be captured and, 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 and the Jews are going to be taken captive and they're going to be carried off to Babylon and all that sort of thing. It's just an ugly picture. But when he gets to chapter 52, he begins to tell them the good news. And the good news is that there was going to be a time coming when God was going to rebuild Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was going to be released and restored and rebuilt, and the children of Israel were going to be released from captivity. And so he describes the experience that the Jews are going to have. Speaking prophetically, he describes the experience that the Jews will have when they're out there scattered in the nation, they're out there captive, they're, they're having to do what, what other nations tell them to do, and they're thinking about Jerusalem and how Jerusalem is all run down and destroyed, and, and they're bemoaning that, and they're thinking about that. There's a beautiful picture of this in the Psalms, uh, in uh, I think Psalm 137, where the psalmist is talking about being in captivity, and he talks about how our captors are demanding of us songs uh, and he says, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So this is what's going on. This is the experience of, 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 of the Jews. And now Isaiah is telling them that that's all going to change. And they're going to come out of captivity. And Jerusalem is going to be restored. And he describes that moment when they hear that news. And how are they going to hear it? They're going to hear it from a herald. They're going to hear it from somebody who comes and preaches to them the good news. And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring us good news of good things. It's that exciting experience of someone coming and bringing to us this wonderful news. So this is the idea of the preacher. It's not the guy who stands up front and we've hired to do our dirty work for us. It's the, it's the person, any person, who is bearing the message of salvation by faith in Christ who comes and declares that abroad. Now, this is a radical change from the way things were under Judaism. You see, 
under Judaism, the way God worked is he was displaying his glory to the nations through the nation of Israel. But what he was doing is he was doing it by having a coherent, cohesive nation here. And as he blessed that nation, as he worked in that nation, as he prospered that nation, the nations of the world would see that and they would see the glory of God. But if somebody really wanted to know about Yahweh, what would they do? Well, they would have to come to Israel to find out. And the beautiful picture of that, of course, is the story of the Queen of Sheba. When the Queen of Sheba hears about the glory of Solomon, and she goes, I've got to see this for myself. And so she comes to Israel. And that's basically how people got the message of Yahweh. They would hear about it, and then to get the full scoop, they would come to Israel. But now things have changed. Under this new dispensation, it's totally turned around. And you have the church where God is working and blessing, but that church has an imperative, it has a commission, it has a command that it's supposed to take the message out to the nations. People no longer have to come to us to hear the message. We take it out to them. And unless we do that, they're not going to hear. And if they don't hear they're not going to believe. And if they don't believe, they're not going to call. So this is our job, folks. This is the church's responsibility. And this is our responsibility as individuals. Now, I don't know where you fit into that or, you know, where I fit. Well, I kind of know where I fit into it. I don't know where you fit into it. That all has to do with your place, your station in life, your calling, your gifts, uh, uh, those sorts of things. But you play a part in making sure that this message is proclaimed and preached throughout the whole world. Beginning right here in Northern Oklahoma. Okay, that's our job. And that clearly is implied in the things Paul's saying here. It's not his main point, but it's clearly implied in what he's saying here. That there's got to be a preacher. Well... But he says, before we have preaching, what do we have? Before the preacher, what? Has to be sent. There has to be a commissioning. You see, this message about Christ does not originate within the preacher. It doesn't come from him. It comes from God. And so, unless God has sent the message through the preachers, there will be no preaching. If there's no preaching, there's no hearing. If there's no hearing, there's no believing. If there's no believing, there's no calling. So, it's all contingent upon God sending preachers. But there's been a breakdown. There's a problem. And Paul tells us about it in verse 16. He says, well, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Well, if the first quote from Isaiah comes from chapter 52, the second one here comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. What's significant about Isaiah 53? 
Yes, it is perhaps the best known messianic prophecy in all the Old Testament. The prophecy of the suffering servant. Glorious, wonderful prophecy. The entire chapter, chapter 53. But Isaiah begins it by saying, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he goes on and he gives this magnificent prophecy concerning the suffering Messiah. So we have a problem. Israel has not believed. Now, Paul says, when he says this in verse 16, he says, however, they did not all heed the good news. I want to call your attention to two words there. One is that word heed in my translation. In the Greek is the idea of to hearken or to heed or to obey. They did not obey the good news. And the Scripture equates obeying the Gospel with believing the Gospel. Now, some people get a little confused here when they see the Scripture talking about obeying the Gospel and they think that that has something to do with faith plus good works. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is equating here the obedience to the Gospel as believing the Gospel. So, when the Gospel is preached, there's an implied imperative. You are to believe this. You are to act upon this. You are to trust God. So when someone does not believe the gospel, they've disobeyed the command of God. They've disobeyed God. So, but he says, Israel has not heeded. Israel has not obeyed. So the question is, there's something wrong here in our little formula here. Something's gone wrong. And Paul says, they did not all heed our report or heed the good news. That's the second word I want to point out to you is that word all because it's really an understatement. Paul says, they did not all heed the good news, but in reference to Israel, really, how many did? Huh? Very few. Only a remnant, he said earlier. Right? Okay. So, so he doesn't really mean that, well, they didn't all believe. You know, most of them did, but there was a handful of them that didn't. That's not what he's saying. He's really giving us a kind of an understatement here. We have a way, there's actually a technical term for when we do this, but we do this. You know, you go out to eat, and you and your wife go out to eat, and you sit down there at the, at the, at the restaurant, and you get this really nice, juicy 12-ounce sirloin steak there, you know, and you cut into it, and you start eating, and you're about halfway through that steak, and you turn to your wife, and you say, you know, that's not a bad steak. Why do you say it that way? <laughs> You know, what do you mean that's not a bad steak? That's a great steak, okay? Well, it's an understatement. You're using understatement to communicate the idea that you really mean. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's using an understatement when he says they did not all believe. Well, no, in fact, they didn't. In fact, very, very few of them believed. And that's what Isaiah is complaining about. He says, Lord, who has believed our report? So we have a problem. We have this sequence, but somewhere something's gone wrong because Israel has not called upon the name of the Lord. But in verse 17, Paul comes back and he concludes his argument right here. He concludes it. He simplifies it. He wraps it up with his simple statement. So we know this, he says, that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of Christ. That we know. 
but we haven't solved our problem. The problem is, why has Israel not called upon the name of the Lord? Well, I can't answer that question now because we're out of time. So we come back in three weeks when we're back together again and uh, we'll look at those last four verses in this chapter and discover Paul's explanation for that.